Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the LSE for this evening's event. Uh, my name is Paulina Bozek. I'm a founder of a design and development studio called Anensu. I'm an alumna of the LSE and a governor here. Um, I'm very pleased to be here to welcome Google Ventures design partners, Jake Knapp and John Zaratsky, to the LSE. Uh, they are here to talk about their new book, Sprint, How to Solve Big Problems and Test New Ideas in Just Five Days. Sprint is a unique five-day process uh, for solving tough, uh, tough problems. It's been proven at more than 100 companies, so I'm sure you're all very excited to hear all about that and the secret of its success. Um, let me briefly introduce our two speakers. Uh, Jay Knapp created the Google Ventures Sprint process and has run more than 100 sprints with startups such as Slack, Nest, 23andMe, and Foundation Medicine. Previously, Jake worked at Google, leading sprints for everything from Gmail to Google X. John Zaratsky has designed mobile apps, medical reports, and a daily newspaper, among many other things. Before joining Google Ventures, he was a design lead at YouTube and an early employee of FeedBurner, which Google acquired in 2007. John writes about design and productivity for the Wall Street Journal, Fast Company, and Wired. Um, for those Twitter users in the audience, uh, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE Sprint. And I, can I just remind you to turn off your mobile phones so as not to disrupt the event. Um, this evening, we are recording this event, and it will hopefully be made available as a podcast, subject to no technical difficulties. Um, as usual, after the lecture, there'll be a chance for you to put your questions to Jake and John, and we're also going to have a book signing after the event. Copies of the book are for sale outside afterwards, and the book signing will take place here on stage. Um, so now, I will hand over to Jake and John to deliver their talk. Hey guys, thanks for coming out. I'm going to switch this over so you can see what I see here. Okay, cool. So, um, so thanks for coming out. I want to tell you a little bit about the sprint process and also how we came to the sprint process. And the story begins uh, long, long ago in the year 2003. Um, so half my life ago, or maybe more like a quarter of my life ago, but it doesn't really matter. Uh, it's a long time ago. And, and in 2003, I became a father. Uh, my wife and I had a, a baby boy. There's a photograph of him. Um, his, his name is Luke. And when Luke was born, I, I kind of freaked out. And for those of you who have kids, you may be familiar with the many kinds of freak out that can accompany the birth of your first child. But the one that I want to talk to you about, the one that's relevant to, uh, to the topic tonight, is that when I returned to work after taking my leave, uh, I realized that you know, while I was at work, there was this, this thing that was going on in, that was important in my life, and I was missing parts of it. Luke was going to be growing up to be a, you know, a crawling baby, and then a toddler, and then a child. And that life that was going on didn't stop because I wasn't there. So every day I spent at work, I was, I was missing something. And it made me think differently about what went on in the office. I took a look at my calendar, and I, I thought, like, what's, how am I spending my time? There were these meetings everywhere. There were you know, meetings other people put on my calendar, and I said yes, and meetings that I put on their calendars, and they said yes. And there were status meetings and check-in meetings and you know, meetings to talk about other meetings. And um, 
it was, it was basically an obstacle course. If I wanted to accomplish anything, I had to wind my way through in these little gaps. And those gaps were often spent with checking email or surfing the web or, you know, just basically wastes of time. Things that were not about the reason why I had signed up to do the work that I did. And in those days, I worked at Microsoft, and I, I, was, um, I was really excited about my... Whoa. Uh, that's really... That's really exciting. <laughs> Those of you on the podcast, you're going to be <laughs> you're going to miss out what's going on here. But let's see if we can kind of jiggle that back into submission. Yeah, jiggling, jiggling, solve it. Okay. Nobody move. That's right. Uh, at any rate. I vowed to become productive during those gaps that I had available to me in the calendar. And if any of you have read David Allen's Getting Things Done or heard of it, I read it three times, cover to cover. I experimented with to-do lists. I, I'm just the biggest productivity nerd, and it all happened in those first you know, few months after Luke was born. And I got to be good. When I had a gap of time, I, you know, I improved my design work. I was working as a designer then, as now. And I got better at, at prioritizing my work. So if I had 30 minutes, an hour, an hour and a half, I would, I would make hay while the sun shines. What happened uh, after a few years went by was that I, I went to a, work at another place. And that was Google. And when I went to Google, I was, I was super excited. And I could not wait to see how things happen inside Google. Um, at least in 2007, to me, like Google was like the coolest place I could imagine. And I was just like, God, what, how do they do things inside, inside that company? And it turns out that it's, <laughs> it looked a lot like the way, the way every, every you know, team operates. There were meetings. And I still had to wind my way through. But, but I, you know, I had those productivity skills. And after I'd been at Google for a while, I saw a new kind of opportunity. Google is, I think, has a pretty good reputation for experimentation. They experiment a lot with their products, launching things you know, early, sometimes maybe before even they should be launched, and, and, and often experimenting with you know, this version versus that version. What I noticed was that there was this culture of experimentation inside the company as well, and I thought there might be an opportunity to rethink the way the work week worked, at least for me and, and for my team. So I started thinking about the things that worked best for me and trying to experiment with, uh, with team processes. If I could you know, wipe the calendar clean and sort of redesign the work week, what should it look like? So I did one-day workshops with teams and two-day workshops, and finally a whole one week where we would you know, prototype, design um, a product right in the early stages when it was most critical to figure out where, where we should go. So in 2012, I left Google and came to work at Google Ventures, which is now just called GV because of the whole alphabet thing. We lost the rest of our letters. And, and so um, at GV, we invest in startups. And we invest in them to, to you know, hopefully make a return on our investment. This, this sort of fast-paced process, with this different way of, of being able to quickly try out ideas, is really helpful if you run a startup. Because if you run a startup, there's a lot of stress involved. You've got all these ideas, all these things you could do to sort of execute on this business opportunity that you see that caused you to, to found the startup. And many of those ideas, you know, maybe a couple of them might be worth a billion dollars. There might be some really big opportunity there. But a lot of them are worth pennies on the dollar or pence on the pound, I suppose. And, and some of them are, like, actively dangerous. And you just you don't know up front. Like, up front, they're just a bunch of question marks. So as a founder, you've got to, you've got to make a really good hunch up front. You've got to say, like, I'm, I'm convinced this is the way to go, and, and then execute on it. 
The problem is that once you execute on it, it, it takes a while to get data. So in Silicon Valley, and I think around the world now, people are really familiar with this idea of get it out in the world as quickly as you can and, and collect some data so you know if you're on the right path. And the challenge is that to get that data, you've got to build and launch. And actually building something, even the simplest thing, always takes longer than you think it's going to take. If you, you know, suspect that it's going to take weeks to build a feature, it often takes months. And if you think it's going to take months, it often takes years. And if you think it's going to take years, it will probably never happen. And everyone is well aware of this in their heart, no matter what they say the estimated launch date is. And it causes people to be more conservative with what they build. They're less likely to take risks. They're more likely to argue over which hunch is the right one to follow. And uh, it would be a wonderful thing as an investor if you could encourage your companies to take more risks, to test those ideas faster, to more quickly get on the right path, if there is one for them. So that's the idea with the sprint process and why we do it with startups. And I'm going to turn it over to my colleague John to explain to you kind of how it works. Yeah. So around the same time that Jake started running sprints at Google, I had joined GV as a design partner. And as a design partner, my job was to help all these companies that we had invested in, uh, there were a few dozen at the time, and there's 300 and some now, but help them to figure out which of those ideas were any good, which were the right ideas that were going to make them money and be successful, and then help them to craft those ideas and turn that that idea into a a successful solution. And so uh, when we started doing this, I kind of had this expert mindset. You know, I was a designer, and I had worked on some successful things, and so I thought, Great, I'll just go to all these different companies and tell them what to do. It'll be, it'll be awesome. And that worked a little bit, but I quickly realized that uh, it was impossible for any one person to have all the answers for all the different products and projects that were going on at these companies. So we started looking for a way to find the answers. And that was when we started working with Jake, and that was when we started doing sprints together. So since then, in the last four years, we've worked together and run over 100 of these sprints, and we've tweaked the process and refined it, and it's evolved, and we've, we've used it in all different kinds of companies. And what we've come to is a, a, a pretty reliable, pretty consistent way to build and test a prototype in five days. We feel like this is an amazing way to get from those ideas to that data that you so, so desperately need um, as an entrepreneur. And so I'll walk you through the five days. Um, we don't want to waste anybody's effort on the wrong part of the problem. So we start by spending an entire day just planning and just understanding the problem. We assemble the real team together. So we don't want this to be some special project where a special team goes off to a special room and does some stuff while everybody else does the real work. This is the real team. We think it's a better way for the real team to work on their most important problems. The way we capture that understanding is to create a map of how a customer moves through the product or service. By creating this map, it allows us to not only get everybody kind of on the same same page, but to select that one part of the map, that one part of the problem that we think is the biggest opportunity or the biggest risk, the most critical thing we could focus on. This is a map, uh, this example I'm showing you is from a company that we we work with who uh, makes software for cancer clinics. And so it's it's an insanely huge problem. There's no way we could could solve that entire problem in, in one week. But by selecting a target, we can focus on a part that we can, we can reasonably prototype and we can test with customers and we can make sure that we're moving in the right, right direction. So on Tuesday, after spending the entire day Monday understanding the problem, we finally get to work on solutions. And the way that we work on those solutions is by having everybody individually sketch their ideas. We don't think that group brainstorming works very well 
Um, and, but what we think works really well is to have individuals on their own taking their ideas from abstract, things that sound great in theory, to concrete, having to you know, take the time to sit down and think through the details and write it down. And what we produce are these super detailed sketches. They're not fancy works of art, and they're things that anybody on the team can do. They're mostly just boxes and words, but they're concrete, and people take the time to think them through. But in a, in a typical sprint that has seven or eight or nine or, or ten people, we're going to have a whole bunch of different solutions, a whole bunch of different ways that we could solve the problem that we're working on together. So we spend an entire day deciding which of those to pursue. Now, in that typical process that Jake described, where you're selecting an idea and building it and launching it so you can get data, you're kind of forced to choose one idea. You're forced to argue inside your team and, and try to figure out which idea is the most promising before you go and test it. But in the sprint, we have the ability to keep multiple ideas alive, to allow those ideas to compete. So we go through a series of structured decision-making processes. You know, We think that one of the problems that teams run into is that um, they're just not very good at making decisions together. Uh, they try to reach consensus. There's groupthink. The person who's the loudest or the most, the most eloquent uh, sort of uh, dominates the conversation. Um, so we do a few different exercises, including this one we call a speed critique, although it's not usually quite that fast. And then we uh, collect a whole bunch of input and information from the group, but we let the decision maker make the final call. So the decision maker, or the decider, as we call that person, reviews everything that's been done by the team and decides on an idea or ideas that we want to test. Hopefully bold, risky ideas, like, for example, tabs. It's maybe <laughs> not, the, not the best example. But this is a, this is a more, more realistic example. This is from a, a project that we did with, with Slack, which makes uh, communication and collaboration software for teams. And there were two very different approaches to a big marketing challenge that they had. And so we decided to, uh, to take those two ideas and to have them compete head-to-head with our, with our prototypes. When we had this competition between ideas, we call it a rumble. And this is one of the things that we think is the most unique and the most powerful about a sprint, is the ability to keep these competing ideas alive. So we capture these ideas. Uh, these two separate ideas in the form of a storyboard. What we're doing is we're trying to take the best ideas from those individual sketches and stitch them together into a plan. This plan is basically a blueprint for the prototype we're going to make. The idea is that we want to make a lot of the big decisions when we make the storyboard so that the next day when the team comes in to build the prototype, they don't have to make those big decisions. They can just they can get in, in the groove, they can, they can crank away, they can get that prototype done really, really quickly. And that's exactly what they do. After three days of drawing on whiteboards and talking and doing all sorts of dorky exercises, people get to sit at their computer and work. And it's a lot of fun because people are making. They've got a plan. They're able to make something faster than they thought was possible. And what we're working on making together here is a realistic facade. So there's lots of different kinds of prototypes. But the kind that we believe in is something that's not fully functional. It's not complete. It's just sort of the, the surface or the facade of that finished product. It's something that we can show to a customer. We can get that customer's reaction. So to use the, the two examples from Slack, we turn those two different sketches that our decider had selected with input from the group, we turn those into two realistic prototypes. And if you, yeah, maybe you can't quite see here, but these two different prototypes actually had two different brand names, right? So, they, so to the customers we tested with, 
they were just two competing products. They didn't have to think about whether it was option A or option B. Finally on Friday, it's time for the test. And the way that we test our ideas is with one-on-one -on -one interviews. We th because we think it's an amazing way to learn not just what is working or what is happening, but why. Because we can, we can sort of see how people react. We can listen to what they say. And we can do five of these over the course of a day. So we do five one-on-one -on -one interviews. And while those interviews are going on and those customers are looking at the prototypes and reacting, the rest of the team is watching over a live video feed. And they're taking notes. And so this is one of the things that is, is really cool about a sprint is that by the end of the day, uh, the team has sort of same-day data. They have a same-day summary of what they saw and what they learned. They don't have to wait for the researcher to go and write a report and come back and present it to the group. And in the case of, of this, this sprint with Slack, uh, we found out very quickly that, that option A here um, didn't work so well. People didn't understand it. It didn't make sense. But option B, which turns out was a lot simpler to, to design and engineer and build and launch, was much more successful. So I talked about doing sprints with you know, well over 100 uh, startups, a uh, huge variety of things, things you'd expect like software products and mobile apps and e-commerce sites and even some, some projects in, in healthcare and life science. Um, but I'm going to turn it back over to Jake to talk about the story of a sprint that we did with a company called Savvy Oak. Yeah, so thank you, John. So Savvy Oak is a company you may not have heard of. It's not, not yet a household name anyway. Um, and it's an unusual sprint story because, as we've talked about, a sprint is a great way to start a big, risky project. When you know it's going to take a long time to do something, when there's a lot of risk about which direction you point before you head out, a sprint's a great way to, to fast forward into the future and find out what that future's going to be like. This story is unusual because it happens quite close to the launch, but as you'll see, it's a, it's a big risk nonetheless and a big question that this company was trying to answer. And there's another reason why it's, it's just so fun that I have to tell you. So Savvy Oak uh, is a company, this is their mission statement, which might help you to understand what they do a little bit. But I think it's better if I just tell you what John told me after he first met them, which is they make robots. And he was really excited. And I instantly also became very excited because I, robots, if you are not uh, you know, very excited about robots, you should be. And so, um, so they were making robots, and that's why I have to tell you the story. Um, Savioke was founded by a guy named Steve Cousins. Steve worked at a place called Willow Garage in Silicon Valley, and they do a lot of, uh, they had been working for years on robotics. They had made some very sophisticated robots, uh, one in particular that could, you know, open up a refrigerator, delicately take out a bottle of beer, open the beer, bring it to you, uh, which is perfect if you, you know, wanted to spend millions of dollars to have a beer delivered. Um, <laughs> and, and one of the insights that Steve came away with from his time at Willow Garage was that a lot was possible with robotics, but a lot of the applications were you know, either wildly expensive, things that were really geared for industrial purposes or you know, not, not really ready for prime time, or things that were somewhat trivial. You know, to him, the, the, um, the Roomba robot was, was interesting, but it didn't interact with people. He sees a future where robots are working with us and helping us in sort of real life, and he thought that with some of the advances in sensors and battery power that have largely been fueled by, um, by mobile phone development, that this was a great time to make less expensive robots and put them into places where they'd interact with humans, some of those humans unsuspecting of, uh, of encountering a robot. 
So Steve built a team. Uh, he started this startup called Savio. He built a team of engineers, roboticists, designers. And they decided for the first target for this, you know, the service robots that they wanted to build, that they would, they would start in hotels. So as Steve explained it to us, if you, if you imagine working at a hotel front desk, your day might look something like this. Now, this is a chart that I made up, but I think it's, um, it's fairly representative of what the day is like in a hotel. And if you've ever come in, you know, in the evening to a hotel, you might have had this experience where you're, you know, you're trying to check in, and while you're checking in, other people who checked in, you know, maybe a few minutes ahead of you are up in their room, and they're calling the front desk. And so the poor person at the front desk is both trying to answer their calls and bring them a, you know, a towel or whatever, and, um, and also trying to, to help you and give you good service. For a hotel, it's hard if you're the manager of a hotel to staff those spikes in service because they don't last that long in the morning and in the, in the evening, but they're intense, and so they, they put a lot of strain on the staff. So Steve's thought was robots could make some of those deliveries up to the rooms that the, that the hotel staff are making, thus enabling them to pay more attention to guests in real life in person at the desk. So over the course of the first five months that Savioke was in business, they built successively more sophisticated prototypes, moving from um, what appears to be a garbage can over here on the left, all the way over to, to this robot on the far right, uh, which they called the Relay. And the Relay robot is about as, you know, maybe waist height. It's about the size of a, of a trash can, essentially a big trash can. Um, and it's like a, like a self-driving locker. There's a little hatch on the top. If you are at the front desk, you could open that hatch, put in a toothbrush or a, you know, a juice or whatever, whatever someone wanted upstairs, and close the hatch, type in the room number, and then the robot on its own was able to navigate the hallway, call the elevator, ride the elevator, go to the door, and when the, you know, when the guest opens the door, the hatch opens. There's the, there's the delivery. So quite cool, very sophisticated, and they, they had gone to a great deal of effort to make the robot work, to make it safe, to make it reliable, to make it so that it could you know, have long battery life and could drive itself to its charging station and dock, lots of cool things. But they'd also, and they'd also gone and um, sort of set up this pilot with a hotel. So this is a, the Aloft Hotel in Cupertino, California. Savio had built this one prototype robot, and they were going to put it into service in just a few weeks, making real deliveries to real guests, which is like really exciting for them, but they're also a little freaked out because if this one robot, if anything doesn't go well with that launch, it's, it's very tough for a startup to, to recover. They had this one big question. They weren't sure how the robot should behave around humans, and uh, if if, you know, I don't know if you guys are anything like me, but I find elevators awkward when I'm with there with another uh, person. And if you throw a robot into the mix, it's, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a big question mark. What, what, what should happen? So um, as, as Steve explained it to us, he said, you know, if you are uh, into science fiction at all, and you guys are maybe familiar with Asimov's laws of robotics, they're, they're complex. They, they sort of expect a high level of, of robot uh, capability. And whether or not you're a science fiction reader, you've probably seen science fiction or been aware of science fiction that was influenced by this idea of robots as, um, as, as very intelligent, thoughtful protectors of, of humans. Steve explained to us, this robot is not as sophisticated as we, we expect. 
And uh, he said, you know, we've been spoiled by Wally and C-3PO. We think that robots have thoughts and plans and hopes and dreams. And this robot just wants to open its hatch so you'll take the toothbrush out. It's not going to be able to engage in a conversation with you. You know, if you guys have ever tried to tell your smartphone something, or like, you know, Siri, um, I'm often frustrated that it can't understand what I'm saying. It doesn't have the context. If you expect that it's going to be a, you know, humanoid in some way, they were really worried that guests might be disappointed or frustrated, and if they had a bad experience with the robot in this first pilot program, it could be terrible for the company. So the safe thing to do was to give the robot no personality at all and just play it, you know, play it even. But they still they wondered. They had some ideas about a robot personality, and when we started talking to them, when John had the first conversation, he realized that a sprint might be the perfect way to test a personality and only risk embarrassment in front of five people, not the whole world. So we got together to do a sprint with Savioke. And on the first day, Savioke, they bring the robot to our, to our offices. This is a picture of them bringing it in, and you can see it's hidden under a tablecloth as though um, a ghost would be less conspicuous than a, than a robot on the Google campus. So I, I don't know. But they, but they brought it inside, and here's a picture of it inside, and it looks, you know, as you can see, kind of like a printer. It wasn't when they took the tablecloth off. We weren't immediately impressed. But then the robot started to move around, and it really can, it can sense you, and, and then, you know, it's very cautious and shy, effectively, and, and will go where it needs to go by figuring out how to, how to wind a path around you. And it just triggered, in my brain anyway, like dog. And uh, we immediately fell in love with the robot. This is, uh, <laughs> this is probably the first uh, hotel robot selfie, at least as far as I know, um, historic, historic selfie. And, and, you know, so, so we, we got excited. On, on the first day, our job is to make a map. And in this case, we wanted to make a map of every point at which an unsuspecting guest might encounter the robot for the first time and be surprised, be delighted, whatever. We wanted to figure out where are all those spots in the lobby, in the hallway, in the elevator, so we can figure out the best one, the best place to focus our effort for the prototype. We know we can't do the whole thing in a week. We decided on the moment of delivery. So Steve thought this was both the biggest risk for the robot. If, if something was uncomfortable or unpleasant about that moment when you know, you're standing on the threshold to your personal space, you open the door, and if the robot's there and kind of freaks you out or weirds you out, it'd be really bad. But it also represented a, a huge opportunity because if that went well, if it was delightful, if that handoff went well, um, that, was, that was exactly what they were hoping for. So on Tuesday, we sketch, and as John said, the, you know, sketching involves the entire team, everybody working individually. In this case, we had engineers, we had designers, we had the chief marketing officers, everyone you know, who represented a variety of, of viewpoints from the team and could give us different perspectives. And again, that work is not a crazy shout-out-loud brainstorm. It's quiet work. It's, it's almost boring. It looks like a library. People are just quietly for a long time putting a lot of detail behind their ideas. Now, on Wednesday, we had tough decisions to make, as we always do in a sprint. There's you know, 10, 12 different approaches, and Steve had to, had to choose which ones uh, we were going to prototype. So he, he decided on three risky ideas. 
first of all, to give the robot a face, which was something that Savio had contemplated for a while, but they really thought would be the thing most likely to encourage people to have a conversation with the robot, which, as I mentioned, probably not going to go very well. And, um, and so to make sure that we sent the right message with the face, we considered a lot of different faces. <laughs> and Savio had thought about this a lot. And I mean, as you can see here, there's everything from sort of the, the scary Hal uh, red light from Hal 9000 um, to, uh, to this thing, which actually might be even scarier. Um, <laughs> and ultimately, we decided on, on this face. They were kind of inspired by this, this movie, um, My Neighbor Totoro. It's this Japanese animated film. And there's this kind of big, sort of friendly uh, bear monster in it. And, um, and he has these kind of sleepy eyes. And there's something about these really like, simple eyes that, um, that, that you know, they, they felt maybe could suggest personality without suggesting sort of too much personality. Another idea was to enable the robot to play games. They thought, you know, if people enjoy the robot, they might want to play Follow the Leader, or maybe they play Tic-Tac-Toe with the robot. And, uh, and then there was an idea to have the robot do kind of a little, a little dance, kind of shifting back and forth uh, in joy after a successful delivery. This idea was uh, submitted by my colleague, John Zaratsky, and I <laughs> would like to, go, <laughs> I'd like to go on the record as saying I thought this was a really stupid idea. Uh, so um, anyway, we'll, we'll see what happens, John, later in the, later in the presentation. So on Thursday, we, we've got to build a prototype because we've, you know, in the, in the sprint, we're always on Thursday morning, we're like, hey, you know, we really should have done those other steps faster, but it's important to spend a full day on the other steps so that we can move actually as, as quickly as we need to on Thursday. We've got to build a prototype, a realistic prototype, in eight hours. And so we split up the work. We've got one person working on sound effects. Um, here, we're working on the, the screen for the robot, basically the face and the, the UI that you interact with. Now, in real life, the robot's got a screen that's kind of built in. But for the purposes of our prototype, just to appear realistic in this one narrow interaction, just for a few minutes, we could take, um, this is just a, an iPad mini. And um, they're, they're using Keynote to put a Keynote presentation on the iPad, running full screen with hot spots so you can touch and move through as if it were a, you know, a functioning piece of software. So they took that, that iPad and then just stuck it on the front of the robot, took off the normal screen and stuck that on there. Also had to figure out how the robot was going to move, how it was going to do the dance, how it was going to move into position. And again, normally the robot is programmed, it's autonomous, it's you know, sensing what's around, making sure it's not running into anything. In this case, this is Tessa, the CTO, and as you can see, she's driving it around with a PlayStation remote, which is sort of a manual override for the robot. Uh, here, our, our colleague Daniel somehow got a hold of the PlayStation remote, and he's kind of going to town. But the idea is that you could, with the, with the sort of manual mode, you could fake it. You know, for five deliveries, which is all we, we would need to do to test it, um, we could sort of, you know, somebody from Savio could stand around the corner and just drive it the way we intended for it to work when it was fully functional. So it's Friday, it's time for the test, and um, you know, we're, we're all excited and, and nervous about what's going to happen. This is our colleague Michael, and he does, uh, he does research at, at Google Ventures, and he trains also our startups on how to conduct these kinds of customer interviews. Michael came down to do this interview. We were all, we were all very interested to see what would happen, and he wanted to see it in person himself. And so here he is, a photo of him in front of the hotel. And at 7 a.m., he gets into the hotel room and starts setting up basically a makeshift research lab. So he's got his suitcase, and uh, again, an actual photo of him. And in his suitcase, he's got you know, uh, laptops, sort of uh, drop cams. He's got tripods, extension cords, 
uh, duct tape. It's kind of a miracle that he gets through um, security at the airport, but he does. He consistently, uh, possibly on a watch list. Anyway, and he's, he's got gum. He's going to be talking to people. He wants his breath to be sort of minty fresh. And, and as you can see, here he is with the Savio team, and they're taping cables to the, you know, to the walls, and I'm pretty sure the hotel knew about all this. Uh, drop cams in the hallways so that we would be able to see from all angles what happened as the customer reacted to, to this robot. So at 9 a.m., I, I want you to put yourself in the shoes of the first customer who, um, who we had recruited to come in for this test. And, you know, you're driving into the hotel, but the story starts earlier in the week. We post an ad on Craigslist to sort of attract a broad variety of, of customers and then be able to filter down to the ones who matched our target audience. So you saw an ad on Craigslist, and you responded, sure, I'm free on Friday. I'll fill out this form. Sounds interesting. And you fill it out, and you get this email from Michael. And in the email, it says, you know, I know this is a little unusual, but I'm going to ask you to come in to uh, conduct this test in a hotel room. So this is you on Wednesday, you know, and you think, um, okay, well, that sounds a little weird, but I'll, you know, I'll check it out. So you, you sign up. Now it's, it's Friday, you. This is actually happening. You're in the lobby. Michael shows up. He says, come with me. Come into the elevator. And then you're in the elevator with Michael. And then you're in the room with Michael. And there's <laughs> cameras everywhere and tripods. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, you would have to, you would have to wonder uh, if this is a good idea. But even in, this, even in this most awkward of situations of running a customer test, and this is really, I think, the most awkward we've encountered in, in well over 100 of these, um, it's possible to conduct, to conduct a, very, a very good test. So Michael, Michael loves this story, by the Michael, way. <laughs> Michael loves that we retell this story over and over again, uh, making fun of him. So, um, but no, but actually Michael did an excellent job. So he's got his work badge on, which obviously he didn't really need at the hotel, but it made it very clear that he was a, you know, who he said he would be. And, um, and he's, got a, you know, he's got a clipboard. His body language is non-threatening. Um, he's, he's sort of very clear with the person about what's going on, what's going on with the cameras. We also want to set it up so that it's as realistic as possible when the robot makes a delivery. So he's asking questions of this first customer, this woman, about what would happen, you know, per hotel habits. So when you check into a hotel, where would you normally, in this room, where would you put your suitcase? And, okay, and um, do you unpack right away, or is that later? Okay, and um, if you found that you had forgotten your toothbrush, if you, you know, went to your toiletries to brush your teeth and you, you realized it was gone, uh, what would you do? And she says, well, you know, I guess I would call the front desk, and I'd ask them probably where to get a toothbrush around here, and, you know, that I'd go get one. And Michael says, okay, you know, why don't you go ahead and do that? Just call the front desk and let them know that you forgot your toothbrush. Here's the number. And the number is actually the phone number of, um, of Allison, who works for Savvy Oak. So, so the, the customer calls, and, uh, and Allison answers, and she says, sure, I'll send a toothbrush right up. So Michael continues his questioning. Meanwhile... We're back at uh, what appears to be mission control. We've got all the, all the camera feeds, and we're watching, and we're like, we're on the edges of our seats. What's going to happen? And so, um, so we're able to watch, and you can see on this monitor as the, the robot moves down the hallway, moves into position, and makes a delivery. She opens the door. There's the robot. She's surprised. The hatch opens. There's the toothbrush. She takes the toothbrush. We're able to, five times, we're able to basically fast forward into this future where the robot has a personality, is in the real world, and encountering people who aren't suspecting it. And, um, and so what we learned was that nobody wanted to play a game with the robot, unfortunately. Um, but the face worked. People were delighted with the robot. They were excited about meeting with the robot. Because, of course, it's a robot. Um, but, uh, 
but no one tried to talk to it, and nobody got frustrated with it. So that was great. Savioke was able to take that risk with the face, and, and it worked. The dance even worked. People liked the, the dance. They, I, you know, um, I'll, I'll show you what it looks like. You can see this is the robot in, in action now, in actual, um, you know, in a real hotel making a delivery, and you'll be able to see the dance. Um, you can see here's the face, and, uh, and here's sort of, a, you know, giving a review to the robot. <laughs> and there's the dance, and it's very simple. It's, it's, it just rotates back and forth. It's the type of dance a computer nerd would think of. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no coincidence. <laughs> So, um, so that's not a, not a normal sprint for us, but it is normal in the sense that it's, it's a risky idea test, tested in an unrisky kind of a way. When you've got this long lead time, when you're building something, and when you know, in this case, Savio had built this big, this big project, but they knew there was a lot of risk associated with the launch. Both of those things, that, that time spent building, that public you know, moment when the product goes out, they're costly. And so it is natural that people are hesitant to take risks. The idea with the sprint is you get data fast, and you're able to, in that way, test riskier ideas. As investors, we like that because, as cheesy as it sounds, if people take bigger risks, they're closer to their vision, and we think they're more likely to be wildly successful, which is just what we want. And whatever kind of a project you're undertaking, this is a, a worthwhile thing to consider, to try to find a way to take a big risk faster, to fast forward into the future and find out what it would be like if you were already finished, and whether people would care what, it would, what that world would look like. This is something that my, my father used to say to me a lot when I was growing up. He said, um, you know, find a way to enjoy your work because you'll spend most of your life doing it. And I, I think it's a worthwhile idea to consider. Um, my father passed away in October, and at his memorial, uh, there were people from the family who spoke and, and came, and there were also many people who had worked with him throughout his life people from his 20s and 30s, his 40s and 50s, his 60s and 70s, who had worked with him, and they talked about that, that life that they had with him at work, you know, that, the, the things that they did together, the, the camaraderie, the teamwork. And I talked at the beginning of this, uh, this presentation about the importance of, of that life at home and how I, I, you know, I wanted to get back to that, that life at home, to be efficient at work. And it's easy to think of those two things as being in opposition, work and, and life at home. It, real life doesn't start until you leave the office or whatever your workplace might be. But the fact is that those, those both come from the same bank account. They're both life. And the people that you, you know, have it at home, your children, it's natural to think about how to best spend time with them, how to get the most out of those interactions. But it's also worth thinking about how to get the best out of your teammates at work and how to have real meaningful time with them. So whether you try our experiment or some of your own, I hope that you'll consider uh, making an effort to find the, the, the best work for you. Thanks. Thank you very much for your lecture and for sharing all those really clear um, examples with us. So we're going to open up to the Q&A now. Um, can you please state your affiliation, your name, and just wait for the roving mics to get to you? And we'll start with uh, one question at a time, and then we might cluster them. have a few. This person right here in blue. 
Uh, hi, I'm Andrea Paletti. I'm probably should not stand up. <laughs> uh, I'm first year PhD in management. Uh, my question is more about the first step of the process. Uh, like, how do you analyze the, the, the problem? Which are the criteria that you, you use? Thanks. Yeah, the uh, one thing that we really believe to be true is that a team often already has the skills and the, the knowledge and the expertise that they need to solve the problems. Um, if they're an oncology company, they probably know a lot about oncology. If they're a robotics company, they know a lot about robotics. But they're often lacking a structured and sort of intentional way of working together. So in the first day of the sprint, we rely really heavily on the people who are on that team. Um, and we do a few exercises to try to sort of gather information and expertise from those people. Um, creating that map is a, is a collaborative process. And then we do a series of interviews throughout the afternoon that we call Ask the Experts. So we might have a marketing expert on the team. We ask her about uh, what she knows about marketing the product. We might have the, um, the founder and CEO of the company. We will ask her about why she started the company, what her vision is, et cetera. And so we really try to rely on the people who, who are already on the team um, to really understand the problem together. The Frontier. Um, Sarah Drinkwater, Google Campus. Hi, guys. Um, I have a question around a lot of the sprints you've run already have been around teams that have already formed. You know, they have, they have their thing already. Do you think this process works for startups at a much earlier stage where they're still working out what exactly their, their one thing is or not? I don't know if you're allowed to ask questions, Sarah. <laughs> but all right, we'll make an exception this time. Um, no, I think that um, well, even in our experience, sprints work quite well very, very early in the process when you're just starting to think, like, maybe this is an interesting direction and I want to you know, find out about it. In fact, even if you're before that step where you've, you've got a specific idea about the product, the kinds of research that we talk about in the sprint can be conducted with other products that are kind of in that in that space, or even just there's some good ways to talk to people. You know, and this is a, this is an idea that's been around for a long time. It's not not new to to this book, but the um, the one thing that I think is a is a caution for people is that the sprint is not going to produce a great business idea. You're not going to go in with nothing and go through the steps and then have something amazing come out of out of the end. Um, as John said, going in with expertise in in the topic area, going in with a strong team, and usually going in with a, a good hunch about a business opportunity at, at least is going to be critical for for a successful product in the long run. It reminds me of the, a sprint that we did a couple years ago with a company called Digit. It's one of the companies in our portfolio. And uh, they make an app that um, connects to your bank account. And what it does is it monitors your, when you spend money and when you make money. And when there are opportunities to set aside a little bit of that money, it does that for you. So their, their tagline is, save money without thinking about it. Um, but the sprint that we did with them was, was at a very formative time for the company. I think there were three people at the company and they had brought on one or two contractors, people who they were sort of considering working with, and they were part of the sprint. And they had this product, but they didn't really have any marketing for it. They didn't really have an, any, any uh, sort of, their messages weren't figured out. They didn't have that tagline yet. That tagline actually came out of the sprint. And so I think that's, you know, that's an, uh, an example I often think of, um, of a, a, you know, a very, very nascent team, very nascent uh, company who's just kind of figuring out the basics. Right there in the back, please. 
Hi, thanks very much, guys. I thought that was fantastic. Um, I work in a, a large financial services firm in the UK and uh, I, I get incredibly frustrated with the many months that it takes to get a lot of people to figure out what the problem is, get it articulated on a 120-page deck, and then everyone just sort of sit around and sort of articulate why it's not right. Uh, and, and sort of a lot of sort of the frustrations, which I'm sure you may or may not have experienced it in, in, in the past. And I, and I just wondered, it, do you have to be a Google to have the culture to allow this type of approach to problem solving to, to happen? Uh, because if you could, in my head, at least you could deliver some things in a much quicker way. And clearly you guys have thought about this quite cleverly around how do we debug and take bits of the process out, right? How do we connect a camera to get feedback instantly? Nobody does that. Nobody does that. It's bloody obvious. So just that, I think my question is, you know, do you have to be a Google to, to have that culture to be able to put, solve problems in the way that you do? Well, um, first, I have to, unfortunately, I have to inform you that we're going we're gonna to have to report your grumbling to your employer. But uh, <laughs> um, just, just had to get that out of the way. But um, I, I, don't, I don't think you, you have to be in a startup or at Google. Or um, We have heard many stories from, in fact, this is, this is true. I was out on the street in London today. We were going to lunch. And I, I ran into a person who, uh, who I been at a talk with, at a conference with, and he said, hey, I've been doing sprints, and he works at a company. I won't say their name because I didn't ask him if it was cool to say it, but it's, this is a company with, pro, I'm sure, upwards of 100,000 employees. It's a very big company, and um, a company with a slight reputation for stodginess, let's say. Um, and they were running sprints, and he had made some modifications. He had found a way to make some interesting modifications to it. But um, we've heard about some of those. So, in fact, even at Google, to run sprints sometimes, the, the teams are so big, it, they, they do things a little bit differently. They'll, um, you know, they'll, they'll sometimes, the first day of the sprint, they might do part of that work ahead of time uh, so that they can, can conserve and not have to do all five days of the sprint in one week. We think it's better if you can do all five in one week, but if you have to spread it out, that can work. Uh, if you, you know, can only get the, the decision maker in for certain spots in the sprint, that can work. And sometimes it takes waiting until there's that big project that obviously needs a new approach before it's the right time to try a sprint at a, at a company where the culture is not so accepting of experimentation. But, um, but we've, we've heard a lot of stories of people finding a way to, to get it done. I think that the, a lot of the, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure you're aware of this, you're sort of feeling the pain, but unfortunately there's this tension where at a, at a big company it's often less clear who makes decisions and, and less clear, you know, how to, like, which is the right thing to focus on. And a sprint is sort of like a good, a good forcing function for having those conversations as long as you can you know, find a way to, to get that first one done so it becomes a, a sample. Yeah. We have a question here. Uh, gentleman with the red scarf, please. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm Heide Rieder from Bain & Company. Uh, I was wondering whether you could use the same concept to address some social issues. Um, so imagine I would ask you to do a sprint to uh, stop the flow of foreign fighters joining ISIS. Would that work? Like, who would you want around the table? What would you do? Because obviously there's not one clear decision maker. There's so many options. Do you think it would work, or is it just unrealistic to do something like that? Thank you. 
I, 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 I can, I can, I can, I can that, that is a very This is good, the LSE, right? So you <laughs> expect these questions. Yeah, that is a very good and very tough question. Um, when we, so if you put John and I in a room and asked us to solve that, you would probably not get an amazing solution. But, <laughs> this is, but, um, but I think if you, if you got the right team together, that you might. Now, the, the question that we're always asking, whatever the product is, and there are a wide array of challenges that we've seen firsthand. They're not that wide, but, but they are pretty wide. And what we're always asking ourselves is, where is the, where's the potential breaking point for this, for this potential solution you know, that somebody has in mind? Where's the biggest opportunity or where's the risk? What's the equivalent of the, the, the door of the guest room, you know, where, where things can really go off the rails if this doesn't work? And usually it's a point where your idea meets with, with people. And people are hard to predict. They're fickle. They change from month to month in what they, what they expect and the way they behave. And it might be that in an organizational process, like the one that you'd need to change um, you know, uh, border regulations or the way governments are cooperating. I mean, I know so little about this that I can't even give you intelligent examples. But the, um, the, the, there would be points where the, the thing that you prototype might be the slide deck that um, that you know, one one government office has with a government office uh, from another country, or the the website that that's used to explain this new protocol, or what happens in an airport screening line. I don't know all, what all the possible touch points are, but you can imagine that map, and you can imagine picking the spot and saying, you know, this isn't going to tell us everything. This isn't going to guarantee that this plan will work, but it might test the the critical spot. And with a series of sprints, we might be able to very quickly find some of the weakest points and some of the biggest opportunities. So I always think it's worth trying, at least. Usually when we talk about prototypes, it's a thing that we make. So you know, the examples of, of a, a PowerPoint deck or a document or whatever. But there's also cases where the prototype is something that's essentially acted out by people. Um, and there's an example in the book about a... a a company called One Medical Group, that's a, a private healthcare clinic in San Francisco, and they wanted to try expanding from providing um, mostly uh, medical care to professionals. Um, they wanted to try expanding into providing it for families and for children. And so their prototype was, was uh, basically a medical clinic that they opened and ran for one day. So they just had people on their staff kind of fill in and do different roles, and they had scripts for when this happens, try this. And so, you know, to, to kind of stretch this, this um, analogy even further, I could imagine if there was a, a, a policy or a new way of approaching this problem that you could test. You didn't have to roll it out everywhere. You could test it at one isolated place at one isolated time. You could maybe start to see, is this likely to work? Where are the problems, et cetera? Thank you. We had another, uh, this lady here in the black top, please. Um, hi, I'm Yash Harris from Pivotal Labs. I was wondering, how do you decide who makes the decision? And if that's the client, how do you help the client to help themselves? <laughs> yeah, how do, you, how do you decide who the decider is without a decider? It's a really, <laughs> really, really good question. Um, so often it's obvious who the decider is, but a large percentage of the time it, it is not clear. And... I'll be honest, the way that, that that usually happens is it's an awkward conversation with some, with some long pauses. And, you know, you, we say one or sometimes two. We'll sometimes have two deciders um, in a sprint. Sometimes there's, you know, um, we talk about in, in the sprint a uh, 
the project was Slack, and the CEO was a decider, and the product manager was a decider. So we'll ask the team, you know, who were the one or two deciders, and they've they've got to, sometimes they actually have to have a discussion. Usually a team knows, and they just haven't made it clear, often because the decider is... Um, you know, is a bit a bit humble, or li- you know, likes to likes to hear a lot of input from the team. But we think it's really healthy to have that that awkward or uncomfortable conversation and make it really clear who the decider is, because then you're not worried about pleasing everyone and potentially watering down solutions, which is what often happens. Um, there's a there's a great collegial <coughs> feeling of teamwork that happens inside the sprint, but that can lead to poor decision-making if, if we don't get really clear about that person. Um, yeah, anything you would add to that? Okay. Yeah. Excellent answer. <laughs> well, I, hope, I don't know. <laughs> okay, let's take two questions this time. Um, right here in the front, purple top. No, there is a microphone coming. Thank you. Um, hi, my name is Rob Green. I'm from Cancer Research UK. I've done two sprints in the last month, and I'm exhausted, um, <laughs> which is kind of what the question's about. So um, it's become this catalyst for like change in in my team because it now when we go back to our BAU like day job, we're like, why are we wasting our time in these meetings um, when we could be doing stuff? Um, so the question is, when you go back to Google and you go after the sprint, how does your life change? Did, did your structure change? And Because a lot of people who have been in the sprint said, this, this is great fun, but it's not a real like, life because I've got lots of emails to write. And, and you know, over the week, I can see them like, getting tired and tired because around the sprint, they're trying to do their day jobs. And um, yeah, is it just really for startups or can big kind of unwieldy organizations do it as well? Let's take one more in the center here, right in the middle. You can get the mic. Hey, guys. Uh, Sean's been a struggling uh, entrepreneur here. Um, just wondering, um, getting, I guess, people together, you know, organizing, people actually put their time aside to do, do, do a sprint. Um, do you guys have any data on whether um, people kind of going in blind to a sprint, as in the people who aren't obviously running the sprint? have performed better, or if everyone's sort of gone and read the book and knows exactly what's happening, uh, have you seen any, any sort of mix in the end of the day? So should we try to answer both questions simultaneously? <laughs> Three, two, one, go. Um, so um, we definitely recommend that everyone buy the book and read it. Uh, <laughs> possibly print, uh, ebook, and audiobook. You should get all three going at the same time. Um, it, People are okay if they come in cold, but it helps if they have a sense of what's going to happen. And we think that the the book, or you know, there's there's blog posts, there's stories about sprints out there. Uh, we just started a new website called SprintStories.com, where people are putting stories who are not us, so you can see what outside people think about it. Um, if people have a sense of what's going to happen and they they think that there's some credibility to it, that'll help you as the facilitator. Yeah, sure. one of one of the things that uh, we think is important about the sprint is that. Having, uh, having structure and having sort of uh, the, the minute-to-minute decisions about how should we approach this problem be taken away from you, uh, free you up to focus on the problem itself. They really free you up to use all of your energy on trying to solve the problem instead of trying to think about the process. So that's, that, in that sense, it's really helpful if everybody understands how the week is going to go. About the question of what we do on, on sort of how the sprint fits into 
real work or you know regular work. And it's the sprint is not meant to be a way to execute. So at some point you have to flip back into the, the mode of execution or you know effectively business as usual. Hopefully as usual with a little bit more more clarity. And um, for us, we run sprints a lot, but it's sort of our, our responsibility to help our entire portfolio to, to be successful. And so we're not building one product. We're not working on one service um, all the time. And so we're, you know, we can talk about what we do, but I think what might be more interesting is the way we've seen this work for, for other companies. For a startup, it's easier to say we're spending this week on the sprint and you know, there might be less of an expectation that you're also doing your day job at the same time. But I realize in a big organization, that's often a reality that you, you know, stuff, stuff does pile up. Um, usually in a, in a, for a follow-up sprint after the first sprint, you know, people will conclude the sprint and they'll have learned that some things worked well, some things didn't work well. Some, you know, what the percentage is varies of, of um, you know, successes to failures within the prototype. But there's almost always good reason to do a second sprint that helps you validate the direction. You know, fix the prototype, fix the parts that didn't work, and course correct and test it again. We usually find that that second sprint doesn't take a full week. It can sometimes be delayed a week while people kind of catch up on other work. Um, it might take, you know, a day or two to, to make those fixes, sometimes to consider other ideas, but usually there's some clarity after the first sprint about where to, where to head. And then you still need a full day to do testing, but you don't need the full week with the full team. So that's, that's one thing that helps. Um, I also think that over, you know, when you're doing your, the first sprints in an organization, there's more pain to adjust because the, the normal way of doing work, the, the week-to-week and month-to-month process, doesn't have sprints figured into it. It doesn't have this, this way of very efficiently pointing uh, you know, the direction for, for the company or the team. And so in the longer term, if you are able to establish sprints as something that you regularly do, then it might be that you know, you're doing them quarterly, and there's sort of a, a time when people pause. I mean, you know, I realize this might sound like kind of fantasy land, but we have seen a lot of, um, a lot of even the larger companies that we work with do this, where there's kind of a, a time when they sprint, and then they sort of go into execution mode following that. And then I think uh, another thing that might be useful is um, it, it's pretty common for teams who have been exposed to sprints to uh, take parts of the sprint and break those off and use them in, in you know, sort of everyday work. And, and like you're saying, after working in sprints, sometimes it can feel very frustrating to you know, sort of go back to the way that things are normally done. So a lot of the teams that we've worked with, they'll say, um, oh, we're now in the habit of running user research, running customer research every two weeks because we saw how powerful it is. Or, oh, we were having a, a, an endless debate, an abstract debate in a meeting, and so we had everybody write down their ideas, and then we talked about it. Those types of things. Um, even things as simple as just being very structured about your time and saying, you know, uh, on Thursdays we don't have any meetings so that everybody can do deep work where they really focus on what's important. Um, th- there are a lot of little pieces that you can take from the sprint and use in, in everyday work as well. There in the back, please. And then the gentleman in the blue shirt. Let's do those two. And then we'll go back to the top. Hi, my name is Talita. I work in a global asset management firm. Um, and 
and and actually um, I work in finance, but um, a good thing that our firm is um, very um, empower um, innovation. Um, so I, I would like to experiment sprint at our firm, but um, a lot of time we want to ensure that we get global perspective. Um, a lot of our team members are in Hong Kong, New York, etc. Just want to hear your if you have exper experiment sprint um, via VC, how would that work? Um, and yeah. Hi, I'm Felix, a student here in operational research, um, master's LC. Just wondering in the test phase, is a sample of five customers enough to make like life or death decisions <laughs> for a company? Yeah, so we, uh, we both kind of started our career as web designers. And in the world of um, web usability, which is basically the, the study of how to make websites that people can actually understand and use, um, there's a, a pioneer in, in that field of research named Jacob Nielsen. And um, he has a consulting firm where he does research for, for clients. And at some point, he wondered um, where the returns on additional customer research um, started to sort of fall off. Um, and what he did is he went back and he analyzed uh, hundreds of, of studies that he had done. And he found that after uh, five um, customer interviews, he had found 85% of the findings he was ever going to find. And he sort of, he, he kind of uh, put forward this notion that five is a, it's kind of a sweet spot in terms of uh, you can do them all in one day. It's enough to feel pretty confident, but it's not so many that, that it, you know, it drags on and on. So that's, that's one thing that has given us a lot of confidence in five. But the other part of it is that um, you know, we, we don't pretend that it's definitive. Um, you know, we think that this type of research is it's directional. It helps you understand if you're moving in the right direction. Um, and it also helps you understand why people are reacting the way they are. So it's very much unlike quantitative research. You know, in, our, in our world, a lot of the companies we work with, they do A-B testing where they show uh, a different version of the product to a certain percentage of their customers. And that is an essential complement to customer research where you're talking to people, but it's not a replacement. So I think understanding the, the things that this type of customer research is, is really good for, um, helps you decide which kind of research to use and when. And then about the question um, regarding video conferencing and having remote participants in the sprint, that is a, a question that comes up quite frequently, and it's one that we wish we had a great answer for, like, use this software and it'll be amazing and the sprint will go great. Um, the truth is it is challenging to have remote participants but if you, um, if you have them show up on uh, when, like Monday afternoon, so when we do kind of the ask the experts part. In fact, they could even be dialed in for all day Monday over video. That's a, that's a day where it works a little bit better. Um, there's not a lot of creating things individually. Um, and, and so it, it can kind of work to have someone chime in and, and you can interview that person over video. What's... Um, What's I think really challenging is to make sure that that person is plugged in to, um, to what's on the whiteboard. So we've sometimes done it where we have um, like one laptop pointed at the whiteboard, one laptop pointed at the person. And it gets, it gets very difficult if they're going to sketch or be involved with the decision making. A lot of the stuff starts to really, you know, we, we still think that like simple things like the whiteboard and paper and pen work so well and they break down um, over, over the web. For now, I mean, I think yeah. someday soon we'll have some amazing technology that I can't even comprehend, but, um, but we don't quite have VR. it. VR. 
VR, it'll be VR, yeah, yeah or uh, chatbots. <laughs> Anybody up here? Okay, got two questions there, please. Can you do the sprint if you know that Thursday is going to take you half of the year? <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a super long sprint. <laughs> the two and a half years. Oh, wait, we're supposed to do two questions at once. Hi there. Let's take um, another question there. Uh, Spencer from uh, Freeformers. Um, I'm kind of interested in sort of stakeholder management and um, expectations that they might have. So presumably <laughs> often... Um, you might find that a sprint fails, or at least the idea that you came up with fails. And I wonder about outcomes. So often clients that we deal with have very strong outcomes, or they, they need some tangible results. I wonder how you deal with those expectations of having tangible results when you actually might say, don't do something, and how that kind of works out. Well, let's answer the half a year for the first day. Yeah, we should first. repeat the question. So the, the first question, which I don't think made it onto the microphone, was how, how do you do a sprint if the first day is going to take half a year? And, um, I mean, you can't. you gotta, you got to force. One of the things that I think that is, is nice about the sprint is that if you make the decision to do a sprint, then you, on Monday, you start to, the process of scheduling those customers to show up on Friday. And then you're forced to move through at an uncomfortable pace. And so decisions that, in reality, probably should take a year to, to debate in detail, to come to the right conclusion, to do all the research and, and be, be certain, um, have to be made very quickly. And what we've found is that those decisions that are made on Monday aren't perfect. They're far from it. But what you get to by the end of the week is this, this concrete picture of what the future might look like. And while it still may take you weeks or months to make the perfect decision about what to execute, you are so much further along in the sophistication of the conversations you can have to get to that point and in, um, in your own understanding of what the, what the end solution might look like. Even if what you do in the prototype and what you test is a failure, even if your decisions on Monday are wrong, it's still quite valuable to, to rush through once and then you know, back off maybe and think more slowly with that, that tangible prototype and, and some customer data in hand. On the, uh, on the second question, um, uh, there's two, two things I want to tell you. The first is that our, our colleague, Daniel Burka, the one who, who stole the PlayStation controller in the presentation, um, he, uh, he wrote an article. So, sorry. He used to run a design agency, and he wrote an article uh, a couple months ago uh, called, I think, Why Design Agencies Should Embrace Sprints. Um, so if you search for it, you find it. Um, I think it's going to talk about some of the things you're wondering about. But I will say that in, in our experience, um, uh, the decision to learn very quickly that an idea is no good or, or has some, some big problems can be incredibly clarifying. Of course, it takes the right kind of attitude uh, to, to be open to that. But um, the, the entrepreneurs that we work with and the startups that we work with, they have a, a sort of a limited runway before their money runs out to validate their ideas. And they're relieved to know within a week or a couple of weeks or a month, several sprints maybe, that um, that idea is not worth spending the next year on. It's not worth spending the next couple million dollars on. Um, so that's, that can actually be a, a really positive outcome. To add a couple notes to that, one is that we, at the beginning of the sprints, we really clearly remind the team that 
it's, it's most likely that we're going to fail a lot. We'll make a lot of mistakes in that week, and that the whole purpose of the sprint is to learn, but not to create a perfect solution. It's about learning, and it's about making those, those fast failures. And um, the second part is that when the prototype, the idea that seemed brilliant on Wednesday and Thursday, fails on Friday, it sucks. It feels really <laughs> bad, and it doesn't matter how much we prepped people and how much we prepped ourselves for the idea that um, that it was, it was healthy to learn fast and early. It feels it feels just awful. But um, but one thing that we've seen because we've we've experienced this a few times is that um, it, it sometimes takes a few days. It's important for the the decider to be in the room watching that customer research and and you know to have been involved in making the decision about which ideas were prototyped because then they'll see it firsthand and they'll they'll have that visceral feeling of um, of you know believing that that the data was true and and understanding the pain of the failure. Usually a few days later, like later in the next week, maybe even a couple weeks later, um, people will come back and say, you know, that actually, I think that was a good thing. But it's not necessarily a feeling that you're going to get right away. I'm actually going to jump in with a question here, and I'm glad you mentioned VR. Um, so a lot of the technology giants, I mean, the Facebook, Google, Samsung, Microsoft, Sony, are all uh, investing in VR. And we don't have any common user interfaces. It's a completely new and immersive experience that is new for all of us. So do you have any insight on how this process can be used, has it been used, or any particular challenges that you think are going to be thrown uh, at product designers that they're going to have to solve using techniques such as Sprint? I don't want to be dishonest, so I'm just going to tell you no, I don't know. <laughs> VR is, VR is uh, it's obviously something that a lot of people are really excited about, and we have actually invested in a couple of VR companies, um, but Frankly, we haven't had much exposure to it yet, so I'm, I'm as curious as, as you are to, yeah, to I mean, see where where it goes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We usually though will go into a, a question like that when it's with a company and say like, well, let's let's see if there's one of those surface yeah. areas yeah. where it meets people and you know and there's questions. And it might be at this point, you know, VR is enough of an unknown that it might be at the point when you're explaining to somebody who doesn't use VR yet why this product is so compelling, compelling enough to make the switch over. It might be, it might be inside the, the, the virtual world. I don't, but yeah, I don't know either. I suspect Just so many questions, I'm sure, is going to be useful for many yeah. product designers. Yeah. I suspect that the first VR sprint we, get, we do is going to feel sort of like the, the Savvy Oak sprint where we're, we're a little bit terrified about getting the prototype done because it's just everything so new and so different, but probably be similarly uh, educational. Yeah, and then we'll just be doing sprints in VR before long. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> Great. Any a question here? Oh, sorry, the mic is coming to you. Sorry, can you start again? We maybe didn't hear you. My, my name is Simon Graffy. I work in Sub-Saharan African Educational Technology. And, uh, yeah, my question is, in an optimal, optimal organization from your perspectives, one that maybe doesn't do sprints every week because that's what you guys do, but um, a, an organization that's evolving and learning as quickly and as, in an, as efficient and agile a way as possible... How much of the time would you be doing this? I think it really depends on how long it takes to uh, execute on an idea that you have confidence in. So, it, like I said, it will commonly take two to three sprints 
uh, with the second and third not being full sprints, to gain confidence in an idea. And sometimes it takes more, and sometimes it, it, it sometimes in one, you know, it's rare. The, the degree of success that the Savio sprint had is very uncommon, usually more failures than that. But once you're, once you're sure that you're on the right track, then it's really a question of how long it takes to get that idea to the real world, and whether you, at any point along that path, need to check again. You know, whether things have, have changed at all, gained more granularity, more detail, and you want to find out, and you want to fast forward. So if there's moments along the journey where you say, gosh, we, we're starting to ask a lot of questions, we're starting to wave our hands in conference rooms a lot about, um, about what the future might be like, that's usually a sign that another sprint is in order. But because of the variability of, um, of execution times, it's impossible to say what a perfect cadence would be. Right here, please. And a question in the back as well. Great suit. Um, hi, I'm Reno Marcello. Um, I just wondered if you had examples of sort of a sprint where perhaps some of the team members, maybe not all of them, but some were skeptical of the process and maybe not going as far as sabotaging, but were you know actively detracting. Hi, <coughs> hi, I'm Prasanna. Um, I work for a bank here, so I just wanted to know if testing the surface uh, would actually help testing the ongoing user engagement uh, uh, and you know the ongoing usage of the app itself. I think that um, so to to your question about sort of the you know how does how does testing the surface fit into the you know long term patterns of using an app that you can't see um, there's a, there's a couple ways that we that we look at that I think that the the most important one is that um, what we're trying to do when we create that map on Monday and we choose that target is we're trying to find um, a moment in an ongoing story, you know, in, so, so you know, it might be a, a, sort of a map that has a beginning and a middle and an end, but it's also very common that it's, it's more of a, a loop. You know, it's, a, it's customers or users who are sort of using a product in an ongoing way, but there's maybe one moment in that loop, or there's one, one place where we're losing people, or one place where people are um, trying it for the first time but, but sort of uh, failing to catch on. Um, and so what we'll do is we'll, we'll select that moment and we'll prototype something to try to improve that moment. And then we'll actually recruit customers who are, who are at that moment, you know, people who maybe fit a profile of having used the product for the last year, but they haven't yet tried a, a new add-on service or, you know, whatever it might be. So we'll actually, we'll be very, very targeted about finding the people who are in that situation and really trying to sort of intercept them and show them our solution. One thing that we didn't mention before that is probably worth mentioning is that we, you know, John worked on YouTube for years. I worked on Gmail for years, and you know, we we're very uh, big believers in the idea of quantitative data. When when you can launch a product and have you know hundreds or thousands or millions of users click on different things, and then you can measure those clicks and try to interpret what's going on. It's it's very helpful. But it doesn't give you the whole picture. And the kind of qualitative data that you get in a sprint gives you half of the picture. And the, you know, that, that quantitative data can give you the other half. In the very early stages of a project, you don't often even have the opportunity to get the quantitative data. But even when you have it, it's often unclear why some of the things are, are happening or not happening that you, you hope your customers will do. So that's maybe 
a, a worthwhile thing to add on. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> well, as to the question about, uh, about uh, skeptical sprinters, uh, they're usually engineers. <laughs> but not always. I mean, not I think, always. To summarize, like, have we ever had someone, if the question is, have we ever had a jerk in our sprint, the answer is yes, we have. Um, almost every week. Almost every, yeah. And it's not always John and I, um, <laughs> or not always only us. Um, the, uh, when there's a skeptic in a sprint, it makes the job of the facilitator hard. So there's no getting around that. It's, it's not easy to deal with a difficult person. Uh, we usually, I actually think that sprint, process works so well in part because of skeptics, though. I mean, I, I tried for years to experiment with these processes at Google, and Google engineers were very skeptical of anything that you know, they thought was just you know, creativity for the sake of creativity or you know, sort of smacked of consultantism or um, you know, someone having an MBA. They just, <laughs> they just, their hackles would raise, and they would, they would say, like, show me the data. Why does this work? And, um, and, you know, that was, that was hard, but the process is better for it. And I think by the time we started doing this in earnest in GV and, and doing it over and over again and kind of testing different approaches, we really had the frame of mind that we wanted to be able to answer a skeptic very honestly, to have a good answer for why we do every part of the process. And as we go, as we're facilitating a sprint, we'll explain we're doing this step because X. Here's the reason why. And the book, you know, part of the, the reason for the book was that we, we wrote blog posts about it uh, starting in 2012. And kind of to our surprise, many teams read the blog posts and started doing sprints on their own, and it you know, kind of worked for them. But there were a lot of questions about what does it look like? What's the story? What's it look like when, that, when a sprint works? Um, give us more detail. And partly, people wanted to know why some of the steps work. You know, because when, when they were a skeptic or when they dealt with a skeptic, they, they wanted answers. So hopefully, you know, not to do too much of a little product placement, but hopefully in this book, <laughs> there are answers for why the, why the exercises that are in there are in there. Um, there is another kind of skeptic who's, you know, someone who is... Uh, sort of disagreeable to the, the way that everybody else thinks about the problem. And we actually really want to have those people in the sprint and want them to voice their opposition to the way the rest of the group is going. Because that debate is often quite healthy. And that idea of having a rumble, having two competing ideas, um, or having a decider so that we have that conversation out and we hash it out. And whoever the deciders makes the call, but it happens where everybody sees it. It's not something people grumble about behind backs. This is a good thing, although not always comfortable. I haven't seen any questions from this side. Okay, right there in the plaid. Hi, Jake. Rajesh Bardwaj. We have a, a mental health startup called 99 Aha. And the question was more around the, the ideation day and actually the selection, where when we have a couple of ideas where there's bits of one idea that's great and there's bits of another one, how do you deal with that? Be able to take one more. Anybody? Okay, in the center again. Oh, sorry, wrong person. Wrong arm. Um, gentleman with the green sweatshirt, please. Uh, hi, Tom White. Um, industrial designer. I'm just wondering about sprint team sizes. Um, if you've tried it, the smallest that it's worked with, how big it has to be before it kind of gets too bloated. Yeah. yeah, that's a fairly easy one. Uh, we think seven is the sweet spot, um, but smaller teams uh, can totally work. 
Um, people have even done sprints alone. Um, when the teams are smaller, uh, they go faster, but you don't get as many ideas, so something you might have to account for. Um, bigger teams also work, but it becomes more of a burden for the facilitator. Um, things will go a little bit more slowly, but you'll have a great breadth of, of ideas. I would say 11 or 12, it starts to get really, really tough to, uh, to kind of manage. And then when you have two ideas, uh, two solutions, and part of one is promising, part of another is promising, there's two things that you can do. One of the things you can do is to take the bits and try to fit them together. So sometimes you'll look at them and you'll say, you know, there's an obvious way that these fit. To use a really simple example, the, you know, the, um, uh, the app store page from this idea looks really good, and the out-of-box experience for the app from this solution looks really good. Let's, gosh, let's just put those together. Sometimes it's not so clear, you know, and you know that there's, there's really something to this idea that's compelling, there's really something to this idea that's compelling, but they don't fit too well. And we really like the idea of prototyping two and putting them head to head. Uh, in fact, John and I were talking on the way over about how that's been something that increasingly we've tried to make the default mode of a sprint, if possible, to come up with two or three competing solutions because it makes people, it's difficult to fit ideas together. You know, sometimes it's difficult to do that without watering them down, without sort of losing some of the, the uniqueness that, that might make them great. And by keeping them separate, you often learn a lot more. Customers can have more to, to more surface area effectively to react to, which helps you learn. So. That question right here in the front, please. Hello, my name is Imola. I'm from the digital team at Penguin. We publish you guys. Um, oh, no. <laughs> we appreciate it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And um, we are just in the process of implementing an agile mindset. And there's a lot of talk about prototyping, what works best. And we talked a lot about paper prototypes. And I was surprised when I read the book that you actually advise against them. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, we think that, um, well, I'll say one thing first, which is that we think paper is incredibly useful within a team and in, within a company as a way of making ideas concrete and showing them to somebody else and getting their reaction and talking about them. But the reason that we don't think it works well for testing with customers is that we basically, on Friday when we do the customer test, we basically want to trick the customers. We want them to think that they're, they're looking at a real product, a real website, uh, whatever it might be. Um, because we've seen again and again there's a difference between reactions, which you get when people see something they think is real, and feedback, which is when they see something that is clearly not done, and they, they sort of feel this weird pressure to sound smart, sort of the focus group mentality of, of you know, you want to sound smart, you want to you say something insightful. Um, and so we always try to, t try to get people into reactions mode. And we think it's only possible when something looks so real that it's believable. And paper prototypes, they just, you, they just don't get there. Um, and sort of as an added, uh, added downside, they also still are fairly time-consuming. You know, they're, they're, they take a little while to get them right. Um, and we say, you know, spend the rest of the time to push through to something that's, that's high fidelity where you can get real customer reactions. Yeah, we're in kind of this golden age of prototyping. There are amazing tools that let you prototype yeah. things that just are completely realistic. And, um, and you can do it in a day. So we are frequently using tools like Envision and Marvel and you know, even like Keynote to mock things up, Sketch. You can, you can make things really quickly, and then all of a sudden it looks like it's, it's an app. 
And the, I think that paper prototypes originated in an era when prototyping to a realistic level like that was, was much harder. And so there, there might have been some economy there. So we disagree with the economy argument, and we also disagree with, the, um, with the getting your customer to, to, to interact with you as an, as an expert advisor um, argument. Okay, thank you. We have time for just two more questions. Did you already ask a question? No. You, did you? No, okay. Sorry. I just want to make sure I get you know, people who haven't. So one up there and um, right there in the back as well. The gentleman with the gray uh, top on, please. Uh, have you ever tried to involve customers into the sprint? Not just showing customers by the end of the week, but actually have them part of uh, the process. Only in a kind of an unusual circumstances where... The, um, the customer has a lot of inside expertise. So if, um, to be concrete about it, I think we've involved people who were sort of customer advisors to um, life science companies. And, um, and, you know, in this case, the person might be um, like a, a doctor or a, um, a hospital salesperson, um, someone who has some expertise that the, the company knows that they, you know, they're going to go to this person anyway to talk to them, and they don't have that level of knowledge inside the company. I think that the, um, uh, more commonly people think about involving a customer who's sort of a consumer in the development of a, of a consumer product. And I, I would not expect to get a lot of value um, from that person, probably because they're just gonna, you're going to maybe overemphasize the opinion of, of one person, um, whereas in the sprint you get to keep the expertise of your team working together, coming up with their own sort of opinionated take on things, and then you can show it to a few people at once and get sort of a, a slightly larger sample size that's a bit easier to, um, to interpret. We have one last question there, please. Um, you made a point on day three of talking about um, techniques to avoid groupthink or letting the loudest person dominate. Do you see that problem on day one, identifying the problem, or on, on day five, taking conclusions? That's a good question. Um, we do, but we sort of, we sort of breezed over uh, the exercises that we do on Monday and Friday to also avoid those problems. So the things that, that are kind of the heart of the structured decision-making process are um, to sort of collect people's individual opinions uh, using voting. So we use adhesive dots that people stick onto things. Um, we also want uh, we want to have a very structured way for people to share verbally their thoughts. We don't want it to just be a free-for-all, but we have a very sort of tight, timed uh, uh, critique that we do. Um, and then the final vote that's placed by the decision-maker. And we do very, very similar things on Monday and on Friday. So on Monday... Um, when we're uh, selecting the, the sprint questions, the questions we want to try to answer in the sprint, when we're deciding um, where to focus on the map, um, those things are all done in a very similar way. And then on Friday, when we're watching the, the customer test, individuals are writing their observations, and then we're sort of uh, you know, using uh, the group to review and look for patterns, um, and then the decider is, is selecting at the end of the day, which basically what, what the team's going to do next, how they're going to take those, those results into the following weeks. Great. Thank you very much. Uh, if there's more questions afterwards, Jenk and John will be around uh, to continue talking. Um, for now, I just want to say a really big thank you to Jake and John for making time to come visit us tonight at the LSC. It's been a great pleasure to listen um, to them talk about their work. 
As I mentioned, uh, the book is for sale outside the venue here. Uh, it's a great handbook. I think you'll take it down from your shelf uh, very often to refer back to it once you've read through it. It probably won't even make it to your shelf. <laughs> you just have it on your bedside table at all times, <laughs> or your office. Um, <clears throat> So yes, the book is uh, for sale outside. There will be a book signing here on the stage. So if you collect the book from outside and then the stewards will direct you back inside for the book signing, which will take place right here. So thank you very much for coming tonight. And once again, thank you to Jake and John.